1974, as a lad growing up in Queens, New York, I had the opportunity to go upstate. I know some of you are familiar with New York. You think of in the city, think upstate is anything north of the Bronx or Yonkers. But this was literally upstate. I was like one hour from the um, Canadian border to go to summer camp. So this is my first opportunity to go to summer camp in 1974. And as a young lad, that's where I met my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So after growing up in a Christian home and going to Sunday school, it was at camp that I actually um, got to meet the Lord and Savior. So if you know me, I'm, you really know I'm interested in the work of camps because they have professionals and volunteers who make sure that we reach the, the young with the, the Word of God. One thing they teach you at camp is um, you have to go through the ABC of, of admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus Christ, and confess with your mouth. They teach you the D and E, you have discipleship and evangelism. They tell you, you know, when you get back to school, make sure you tell your friends about the wonderful gift of Jesus Christ and to share the gospel. And so I, I was, you know, full, full of energy as we are at that age, coming back from camp, and went to school to tell my friends the gospel message. Now, the 70s, this was a time of school integration. So I would get on the yellow school bus and go to another part of Queens um, where, where I actually went to school. And I'll just say that the children of Abraham at my school were not quite so interested in hearing the message of the gospel that I was bringing that I learned at summer camp. So the lesson there is you have to understand your audience, understand the message that you're bringing to the audience. I learned it later, you know, professionally when speaking, but it's also something I experienced as a young lad. So I'd like us to focus on the events of October 31st and learn the lesson why we do some of the things we do, why we are the way we are. And I'm not talking about yesterday, because I know some of you parents are like, you know, grab the kids' candy, so you can't eat it all tonight, and you're actually picking all the chocolate out. And I don't know if that counts as theft, because the Bible says thou shalt not steal. And the whole thing with candy corn, it's not corn and it's nasty candy. I don't even know why it exists. But we're going to go back a little further than just yesterday. And we're going to go back a little further than 1974. We're going to go to October 31st, 1517. So 503 years ago. And this is the day as recorded, as passed down, as when Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the chapel door. And, you know, he had some complaints about the church of his day, some things that he didn't quite like. And it's a dramatic um, painting of him in that, in that pose, nailing his thesis to the chapel door. We don't know if there's some artistic license. There's some who debate and say, well, maybe actually he just kind of handed the thesis to the bishop, you know, sent it by email. But you can't really see that in a painting. So the paintings that you will see, and if you search as many paintings of this scene, because in those days, you know, a lot of the, 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 the holy books were in Latin, and people didn't have access to read that. So there's a lot of paintings, a lot of stained glass from that day that used pictures and images to help communicate the Bible's messages and the Bible's story. And there are two key points and Martin Luther's thesis. There was about, there's, it's, it's almost a hundred, but the two main messages, he was a scholar. He was actually expecting to be a lawyer, so he actually built a case and defended his case. First point was that the Bible is the one true source of religious truth. And the second point that he stressed was that it is Jesus' blood, his death and resurrection alone is our path to salvation. And the reason why these points were so important to him, because in that day, 
again, as a scholar, he had the ability to read and read Latin, and so he could read the holy text. Most people would go to church and, or, and somebody would tell them what the Bible said. So the teaching that you had available was only what somebody told you. It was before the printing press and that everyone had you know, a, a copy of the Bible that they could read themselves. And these texts were in Latin, so people were at a disadvantage. They needed somebody to tell them what the, what the, what the word said. He was able to read the Bible, again, being a lawyer, being very scholarly, um, trained to be a lawyer. And he could read the text. And one thing he realized, some of the things the church was doing was, was just out of line. For an example, they would sell what they call indulgences. They would sell forgiveness of sins. And as our brother Charles read to us in that, in that poem, in that story this morning, Jesus paid the entire price. So there is no money to pay for salvation. So this was one of the key points that Martin Luther took to task with, with the church. And the second was that Jesus Christ's blood alone was all that we needed for that path to heaven. Because, again, one of the other practices besides selling indulgences, if you gave enough money, you could actually buy a seat in heaven for a, a, a relative who had already passed away. And so these are some of the practices that were going on in the, in the church of that day. And, again, dramatically... Martin Luther defended and said, this is not right. And he had these two key points and everything else kind of followed after that. And the reason I think this is a timely topic because a lot of the things that we teach and we believe in our church, and it comes directly from what became at that point the Protestant Reformation. The, the things that we separate, the things that the church is teaching are not right. He went through a lot of grief and persecution after this, but because of that, we believe and we practice a lot of things. You saw the announcement earlier about the, the men's retreat, the labels, ladies' Bible study. And we really open up and dig into the Bible because it is the one source of truth. And so what we really need to understand as Christians is that we really have to know your Bible. If we look at the next slide, there's the character in the fiddle of the roof. If you've ever seen this musical, so many times, and he says, the good book says, and then he'll spout out something. And if you catch it off guard, say, wait, that, that's not actually in the Bible. And then, well, is it? Maybe. It, I don't know. And I think that's a challenge that many of us have as believers. We don't actually know our Bible. And people can quote things from Poor Richard's Almanac. Ben Franklin was not an author of the Bible. He is an author of Poor Richard's Almanac. But people will quote things and say, oh, it's in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. I'm like, well, where did you hear that? Well, my old grandma, you know, she's always reading her Bible. And that was something she would say, so I know it's in the Bible. And I'm like, well, can you show me? Can we Google it? And it's like, well, well I, I, I don't know. And so the challenge is, believers, we don't always know our Bible. We can't defend our faith. If you look at the, um, the armor of God. Most of that is defensive. You have a shield. You have a helmet, a shield of faith, your um, truth as a belt, your, your feet, the preparation of the gospel. But the one offensive weapon that you have is that two-edged sword, which is the word of God. And many times we don't know the word of God. We can't defend ourselves or take offense or have a conversation with someone who comes with other ideas. In the 70s and 80s, we had a lot of um, interest and prevalence of cults. And one of the things all of our parents would be so afraid of, you send your child off to college and they join one of those cults. And the way this works is the cults, they know Scripture. And they use the Scripture 
so that young people who were maybe brought up in a Christian home or, or have been around the Bible or church or something, they say, oh, yeah, these people are speaking my language. Let me, let me go, go hang out with them. But then they slide some other things in there. They have some new revealings by the cult leader, and they add that on to their, the biblical verses that you heard, and they add all this other teaching on. And if you don't understand your Bible and can't defend your faith, you get pulled in in those cases. And this is not new. The cults are not the first ones to do this. If you think of Adam and Eve, the serpent in the garden asked us, as a, did God say that you should not eat of the tree? And then he goes and says, well, you know, God knows that you'll actually be like him and you'll know good and evil. So, and, that, and this is where that began. God had given them definite instruction, and the devil wanted to add something to it. But yes, they were already created in God's image. We know that. But he said, hey, you know, take this fruit and you'll, you know, you'll know good and evil. But that was not God's plan for them. Since the devil was talking what seemed like their language, saying things that God had said, they listened to him and they engaged in that conversation instead of running the other direction and were able to be pulled in. Now, the devil is actually very cunning. And I'd like to go to, he even tries this on Jesus, our Savior. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this Son to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it is being given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So our Savior, in the first two temptations, he replies with scripture. He defends himself with scripture. But who quotes scripture next? The third temptation, the devil himself is quoting scripture. This passage that he speaks is what's currently in our Bibles in Psalm chapter 91. So the devil is coming at Jesus showing that I can use scripture just like anybody else. And again, he was trying to lead Jesus into doing something he shouldn't be doing because Jesus said, well, that's true, but we're not supposed to tempt the Lord. If we get into a situation where we need the angels to lift us up on angels' wings, so be it. But it's not for us to go into a situation to put the Lord, our God, to the test. So the message there is, believer, again, following what Martin Luther taught us at that first, this first part of his thesis, we have to know the Bible. The Bible is the only authority we have for religious truth. So some preacher, somebody on TV, somebody in the radio, somebody with a national or global audience is teaching things that are contrary to the Bible, Which one do you go with? We go with the Word of God. The next verse we have up is is 2 Timothy. This is the verse I believe is in the bulletin. 
All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible says about the Bible. So the Bible is even reinforcing that we need to study and focus on the Bible. When I was a little boy growing up in New York City, there was a song we used to always sing. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I see some of you nodding. You know that song. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I like to use that as a segue into the second part where Martin Luther's focus was that Jesus Christ is our only path, our only need, our only key for salvation. Because, again, as he read, and as some of the things that we read today, Jesus came to earth, took the form of a man, and died to provide our salvation. And that's all that we need. But, again, the church of his day was teaching that you have to add all these other things. You have to have works, a certain amount of works. You hope the good works outweigh the bad works. And, and again, he was very concerned because, as a scholar, he realized, I'm not good enough. It's like, I'm studying and I'm, I'm trying to do my best, but I am not good enough to work my way into heaven. And again, because he had Latin and he had access to the Bible, he could read some of the same passages that we could. He said, well, no, Jesus' blood alone pays the price of my sin. I don't need anything else in Jesus. So that became... His second point that he, that he outlined. But sometimes we have verses like, you know, if we look at this, it said, equipped for every good work. It's right there in the Bible. So what is this role of works? If we say that Jesus, Jesus' blood alone is all we need for salvation, what is these works that we keep hearing about? We'll look at the next slide. We'll have another verse in James. And we talk about works in James. He says, well, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, is someone that has faith, which is all we need, but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and you say, go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs. What, what good is it? And in the same way by itself, faith by itself, not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So this is not a contradictory message. I think it's, uh, it's, it's building on itself. There's another passage in, in Hebrews, which I think kind of fleshes this out very well. When the writer has visited, he said, well, I only gave you milk. Because spiritually, you're not ready for meat and solid food. So I think there's a difference between just coming to salvation and you have that knowledge of Jesus Christ and your surety of salvation, but then doing something about it. And this path says, what, what good is it if you come across a brother and sister who has need and you say, well, I'm just, just go in peace. And you don't do anything about it. We have the uh, example when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. I want to remember, remind myself that we know Christ's death is all you need because of the thief on the cross. He had no time for any works. The next thing on his agenda was to die. But Jesus told him, because of your faith, today you will be with me in paradise. So we have many scriptures. We have proof in the Bible that all that you need for your salvation is acceptance of Jesus Christ.
But again, these, these other passages. So I'll go into Nicodemus. He came to Christ by night and said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus told him, Verily I say to you, truly, you must be born again. And Nicodemus' response is, well, can I enter into my mother a second time and be born? And Jesus says, no, it's spiritual. When you're born of the flesh, it's flesh. When you're born of the spirit, it's spirit. And I'd like to look at those parallel tracks, even in light of the verses we saw in Hebrews about milk and meat. When a child is born, they immediately become part of that family. They are a son or a daughter, a niece or a nephew, a little brother, a little sister, or a grandchild. It's my favorite right now. And they have that role in the family through no work of their own. They didn't do anything except show up and take their first breath. And they have that role in the family, and they will have that role, and they'll never lose that role. They also become a citizen of the jurisdiction in which they're born. By no effort of their own, they have that citizenship. They have a place in their family. And similarly, when we come into Christ's family, we have that place. When we believe and have that spiritual birth, we have a firm place. But our pediatrician has a chart. And they say, hey, your child, as you're growing, they're in the 70th percentile, the 80th percentile. If they're too small, you start wondering, well, why isn't the child growing? And at one-year-old, the child can walk. At two-year-old, the child can talk. At three-year-old, they're potty trained. They begin to learn. At five years old, they can go to preschool and school and continue to grow. And they come to a point where they can go to the school bus by themselves. They can ride the bicycle to school by themselves. You get to the terrible teens. And some of you thought it was the terrible twos, but it's the terrible teens. Then the law says, hey, at about 16, you can drive. At 18, the law says you're an adult. And at 21, you've been drinking, but now it's legal. And so you go through this progression not to prove that you're a human. It's because you're a human and you're just growing up. And you go through this progression. I think similarly on the spiritual side, you grow. You have a spiritual development. That's why the Bible is there for instruction and reproof so that you can grow and to do all the good works. And it's a spiritual, spiritual development. The Bible talks about trees bearing fruit. The tree doesn't bear fruit to prove that it's a tree. The tree has no choice but to bear fruit because it is a tree. And so these are the same things that, that come to us as believers in our spiritual life. That, that as we grow, we come to fulfill good works. But I can't tell you what the good works are because then that would be willed religion. And we don't want to make a new cult. If I gave you a list and say, well, these are the things that you have to do to prove your religion true. We each have that individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And he equips us as individuals to do his work. And we will all do different things. Some in the church, some outside the church. Some will have national, international roles. And some will have an unknown role in, in, their, in their local church. Or in their family. Or in their community. Or just ministering to a next door neighbor that nobody knows about. But people often like lists. If we look at the... We have the story of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to jump into that. In, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Because this fellow came to Jesus and wanted a list. Verse 25. On occasion, an expert in the law, these experts, you've got to watch them. He stood up to test Jesus. He sees, what must I do, is to do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted something to do. 
to be inherited in her eternal life. Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. That was all that was needed. To love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? But he wished to justify himself. But who was my neighbor? So he's looking for a loophole. I'll come to that a little later. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you whatever expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So here's the difference in people who want to list to prove their religion true. We had a priest and a Levite walking down the road. They see these, these are religious leaders. These, these are people that you would look up to and say, you know, that, that guy's got it going on. He's, he's very religious, very faithful, righteous. They see somebody on the side of the road, and they quickly run through their mental checklist of all their religious duties. And there's nowhere on the list that says, on this day at 2.30 in the afternoon, if you see a guy on the side of the road, stop and help him. So mentally, they checked out and said, hey, not my problem. And they continued on their way. Both the priest and the Levite must have been working from the same list because they saw the same man and passed by. But the Samaritan, what does it say? Say so he had pity on him. That's what started his actions. He didn't have a list, but his heart was touched. When Jesus Christ replaces our human heart with his likeness, a heart like his, we begin to have compassion and pity on others. We love them like Jesus loves them. We see them as Jesus sees them. And that becomes what instigates our action. He had pity on the man. He saw the man had bruises, so we took care of his bruises. He saw the man was injured. He saw that the man needed help and the man was stranded with no way to go. So he put him on his donkey and took him to the inn to continue to take care of him. He didn't work from a list. He worked from the compassion of his heart. Whatever he saw was needed by his brother man. That drove him. So when we talk about faith and works, it's not, well, let me do a, a checklist so that people can see what a great job I'm doing. It's driven by that, that heart that Christ puts in us. And Christ used him as an example that we can even continue to this day. And furthermore, you know, this, we're, we're all very busy, but I want to point out that the Samaritan was also busy. He was going somewhere. There's no need to be on the road unless you're going from here to there for some reason. But he took time out of his schedule to stop and help this person. Now, we do know, I, I'm interpreting now, this is Will saying this, 
But he was on a schedule because he stayed with the man for a day. And it says the next day he got help. He kind of passed on. He didn't take the whole burden on himself. Sometimes to prove how religious we are, we take on all the burdens and want to do all the work to show everyone how, how hard we're working for our salvation. But he got help. He shared the burden with the innkeeper and said, can you take care of this? Because I've got to go do whatever I was coming here to do. But on the way back, I'll pay you in addition to what I'm giving you now. So he got help. To, do, to take care of the man. But he had compassion on the man before he, before he moved on. He made sure the person was taken care of. And this was a Samaritan. So that's the, that's the, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. We have some time about the, the loophole. When we read the, the passage this morning also, when the only one returned to Jesus and said thank you, Jesus pointed out, we're not ten healed, we're the other nine. The only one who comes is this foreigner a Samaritan. And in this story also, when, the, when the, um, the young man says, well, who is my neighbor? I think he's looking for that same loophole that says, well, do I have to love everybody? The Samaritans of that day were the other people. So in every culture, we know that there's people that we like to look at, oh, oh those people, or them. Whether it's economic differences, political differences, racial, ethnic differences, whatever it is, Society seems to always want to fraction us, put people in combat with each other. And I think that's the loophole that this young man was looking for. He said, okay, I understand, but there's all these other people around here. Do I have to be good to them too? Who is my neighbor? I think that's the loophole he was looking for. And Jesus deliberately told this story because the hero in the story was one of them people. The people that you like to look down on. You know, you look up at your priests and your Levites, and they're so righteous. And this one that you want to look down on, this is the person I'm using as an example. So I just think that, you know, it's, it's our Savior. He's showing that it's his heart. And sometimes the pedigree doesn't matter. All these other things don't matter. It's just that when we come and accept Christ as our Savior, he puts his heart in us. But he wants more. We don't want that, um, that 35-year-old to still be like a baby, still requiring milk, not able to do anything, still needing to be carried around, still needing to be changed, and all these other things that you have in an infant. There's growth required for humans, and I propose to you that there's growth required for believers. There's a spiritual growth that, that we go through. And again, it's, it's not a list, as the Good Samaritan wasn't working from a list. Is what was put in front of him at the time. He said, this is what the Lord has given me to do right now, right here. And I'm going to take it, and that's what I'm going to go do. When he called the disciples, they were fishing. You know, he said, come follow me. And they were like, well, um, I'm fishing right now. But no, they left their boats, they left their nets, and they followed him. That was what they, that's, that's what they did at the time, because Christ called them. They didn't have a list or a menu that said on a certain day Jesus is going to call you. He just called them, and they went. And how often do we miss the opportunities that Christ is putting in front of us to, to do, his, do His will? To be Jesus for somebody else, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in school, whether it's in our neighborhood. But when that opportunity comes... We don't, we don't have a list to say this is what I have to do to be religious or faithful. But there is a list, and Brother Charles used this list. And so on the last slide, I'm going to wrap up here. And we can compare the Good Samaritan against this list 
These are the fruit of the Spirit. Again, a tree has no choice but to bear fruit. If it's a live and healthy tree, it's going to bear fruit. No choice. If you have no fruit, if you have a dead, a dead tree will not bear fruit. We can, all, we can guarantee that. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Did the Good Samaritan show love to, to this man on the side of the road? Joy. Peace. Did he give that man a sense of peace? You know, the man may have been laying out for who knows how long. Maybe hearing people go by. I don't know. But I think when somebody came and touched him gently and began healing his wounds and taking care bandaging him, I think he could have a certain amount of peace. Forbearance, kindness, and goodness is definitely the Good Samaritan represented kindness and goodness without someone giving him a list of things to do. Faithfulness can interpret. He said he told the innkeeper that when I return, I will pay you for whatever else you spend. So assuming that he did that, he was faithful in fulfilling his promise to the innkeeper. Gentleness and self-control. And against those things, there, there's, there's no law. So again, because of Martin Luther's activities, October 31st, 1517, he kind of put some things in motion that evolved to how we believe, how we teach, how we worship here at our church. We believe that the Bible is the one true source of, of religious truth, and we, and we use that extensively. We have Bible studies. We preach with the Bible. We encourage people to read. Our brother Dan has um, encouraged us to join in with the one-year Bible and you know, read through the entire Bible in a year. Maybe some of you will pick that mantle up next year. And the Jesus Christ, His blood and His, His, His blood shed for us is the only thing that we need for salvation. Now, again, we do want to grow as believers. But we have an surety of our salvation, just like the thief of the cross, that the moment that you accept Christ as your Savior, like that young man upstate in, in 1974, the moment you accept Christ as your Savior, you're part of that family. You have a citizenship. You have new brothers and sisters that you won't lose. And you're a member of that family. So as we wrap up, we don't have a list of what to do to keep our religion true. Martin Luther kind of taught us to get, get away from the works as a method of salvation. But again, we do have guidance that as we grow, the Bible teaches us to grow. And when we have Christ's heart in us, that heart of compassion, he will lead us into what's appropriate for each of us to do as we join him on that great adventure and building his, helping to build his kingdom. Let us pray. Our Father God, we come before you this precious time, and we just thank you for, for this day and this opportunity to open your word and to reflect on the activities of so long ago, how they impact us now. And although there's a lot of persecution for Martin Luther, he set a foundation for a lot of things that we do and believe today. Let us take these things seriously and consider them in our heart as we depart Many distractions in life, but even as the Good Samaritan took time to do the work that you put in front of him on that day, on that road, for that one man. Be with us now as we disperse, and we rededicate our day and our week to you. In your name we pray. Amen.